Good evening. I'm Seth. I'm Scott. I'm Chris. And we are track walking uh, tonight. Out. Yeah, you did. Scott wasn't going to introduce himself as himself, but uh, we're track walking, so Scott is Scott tonight. And our guest on tonight's show is Chris Nonek. And I think the best way to uh, introduce Chris is is to briefly describe the first time I met him, which was in a grocery store parking lot in Michigan's Upper Peninsula at a rally, because, of course, the best place to hold Park Ferme is in a grocery store parking lot. Uh, at that rally, uh, my children were part of his crew. They ate ant larvae out of a rotting log, and Chris asked his co-driver to marry him. Um, and and if that doesn't make sense, we'll try to make it make sense. How are you, Chris? Great. It's not going to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so why why do people know you, Chris? I know you because of Grassroots Motorsport, the Grassroots Motorsports Forum. That's, that's where I met you uh, digitally and then... Um, have met you personally a couple times, but like, why do real people know you? What do you do? Um, I mean, in, in the car world, it's grassroots motorsports, especially going down to the challenge. And at least until very recently, I never spent any of my own money at the challenge. I would just show up, crash on somebody's floor, build somebody else's car and then like disappear every year. Um, and rally stuff rally cross um before that autocross some lemons racing a little bit of tiny bike racing um you've, you've kind of done everything uh, i mean is there any- i feel like there's a lot to uh a lot to keep trying to do but yeah i think that's the most spectacular thing about you is you Every time I, I look at a project you're doing, and you've you've documented some some your rally car builds phenomenally in grassroots motorsports, it seems super linear. Like you start with an idea, and you accomplish a build, and then you go racing. Except at the same time, you're working on like 300 other things. Is that accurate? Um, kind of. I think to to me, it always feels like I'm not doing that many because there's like this roster of if if i had like the infinite money cheat there would be 800 projects like immediately starting um but i don't know i feel like i usually have one race car that i'm focusing on but then there will be either a weird motorcycle or road trip car or something else that i'm kind of doing at the same time it, it ebbs and flows like you you get a build-up of i kind of look around one day and go like there's 12 vehicles in here and then it'll shrink to five and build its way back up that that seems reasonable to me that's that's the other thing is um you actually your house is attached to an old motorcycle dealership yeah so it's Based, there's only like two feet between them uh, because it was built before like real property rules about how far things can be from other things. So literally from my uh, kitchen window, I can see into the shop where the lift is. So like right now, the rally car is staring at me uh, when I go in my kitchen. 
So do you work on it to try to make it go away? Uh, sometimes. I, I rarely forget what's going on out there. I guess I'll, I'll say that. Um, well, well, how could you when you just look out your kitchen window and there it is? Well, the answer is because there are other rooms in the shop. But I, I, I go out there and I see what's in those two. Yeah, his shop is pretty amazing and, and labyrinth-like. It's got all these different rooms and he's got the lift and places and stores extra cars. And yeah, it's... You would be jealous, Scott. Deeply jealous. I've, I only have a garage. I don't have anything close to what would be considered a shop. I, I buy, buy a property that is 50% shop that needs a roof on it. It, uh, if you don't count the roof, it was a deal. <laughs> so, Chris, you, um, you do stage rally. Yep. Um, you also do stage rally with your wife as your navigator. Um, and the, the people, the good people of Grassroots Motorsports want to ask, want me to ask you, uh, what are the dynamics like when you can't just give your navigator the finger and tell them to go home at the end of a rally? Which is, I think, what most of us who have like done one lap, although Scott does one lap with, with uh, a wonderful person he has to go home with as well. But most of us, when we get done with an event, want some like time alone. And so how do you deal with, with that sort of uh, having to be nice to a person after an event? Um... I feel like we've never ended an event like frustrated with each other. The worst we've ever been has been like somewhere in the middle, something happens and then by the end it's sort of resolved. Um, and I think frequently after the event, like after we get home, obviously we're, you know, towing home together and we sort of recap and go over some stuff about the event. Uh, but then we're each kind of doing our own thing when we get home, and I think we process it ourselves to some degree, because I immediately am in the shop, car is up, like, checking everything over, and Sarah's usually going through video or sort of cataloging her notes and figuring out what she does and doesn't want to repeat for next time, what she wants to change, fix, that kind of thing about how we did things, so... I, I would say it there there is this sort of decompression period afterwards where I feel like we're each sort of separately processing it. Hmm. There's probably some good advice in there somewhere. Yes, Scott? Like Dead Air is is Scott debates how he wants to answer that question. I mean I can so I need to leave Becky alone afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to get Becky on the show to find out. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm gonna. I want to answer. I want to ask Chris about individual vehicles and tell stories related with them. Um, there is a motorhome story. Do you have a have a version of that story that's fun to tell? Um, shortening these is gonna be. Well, I'll miss stuff, I, but whatever. Um, yeah. So, so basically, a motorhome story. Uh, for our honeymoon, after I had 
proposed at a stage rally where our car exploded and then drove away from our wedding ceremony in a different rally car, which lost the shifter as I shifted to second. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> Uh, we, we wanted to do like a big road trip for our honeymoon and for whatever reason, uh, we got it into our heads that an RV would be a fun way to do it. We have, uh, at the time we had two dogs and a cat and we were like, let's bring everybody do a big tour of the Southwest. Um, and of course, like not giving ourselves enough time for it really. It was like a 6,000 mile round trip and we had like 10 days or something. It was not totally reasonable. Uh, so I got this huge old Fleetwood something or other off uh, Craigslist. It was like a 35-foot RV. It was big. Um, and worked on it somewhat over the winter. It got stuck in our yard, blah, blah, blah. Uh, got it running okay, fixed it, whatever. We drove out, made it to Tennessee. So we live we live in Pennsylvania. Made it to Tennessee. One of the brakes seized, fixed that in the parking lot, uh, kept driving, nothing super major until a windstorm in Arkansas destroyed the roof and like it started, it was leaking and slightly lopsided, but it still worked. So whatever, kept going. Uh, Were you driving when this happened? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and a, a, a worn out like... 30 year old RV in a windstorm is something. I mean, it, <laughs> it was like if if you can imagine someone just like reaching over and grabbing the steering wheel and yanking it a half revolution at random, it was pretty much like that. Um, and we got to spend one like really cool night camped out in the desert outside of Roswell in it. That was like the night everything was perfect and the RV was still functioning. Um, and that was super cool. Got up that morning and had a little bit of a misfire, but eh, whatever, it still ran. Um, and then went to the UFO Museum in Roswell and then Carlsbad Caverns. And as, I guess, going from Carlsbad Caverns towards White Sands you have to cross like a bunch of mountain ranges and crazy garbage that like an RV is not good at at the best of times. And it was kind of a champ until we went from El Paso to Las Cruces. Um, and we went uphill and it was a, a 4L80 automatic and it would like downshift to second and then just chug up the hill. That's what it had been doing all day. And we got to the top of the hill and I let off the gas and instead of an upshift, the engine just fell back to idle. And we had first and second from then on out and it wouldn't like downshift and hold a gear either. So I had to come down an equivalent grade to what just killed the transmission and we're like... Sarah's like spotting traffic ahead of us so I can weave <laughs> through it because we don't have enough brakes to like come down the thing and still have them by the bottom. Um, survived that, ended up in an RV park in Las Cruces, which was not the best, but you know, fine, whatever. Um, I ended up walking around the following morning 
trying to find a mechanic who would let me borrow a transmission jack so that I could change the trans in our RV in the gravel in this, like, Las Cruces RV lot. And I was having no luck, and one of the mechanics said, you know, like, you could just leave this thing. I've got property that you can park it on. And Sarah and I discussed it very briefly and we're like, yep, that's what we're doing. Like, we're out. This thing is done. We don't care. Doesn't matter. Um, so we parked it there, got a Penske truck, moved all our stuff into the Penske, and did the rest of our trip up through the Grand Canyon and a bunch of national parks in Utah, Colorado, Pikes Peak, all with the RV or the, the, the Penske with all our RV stuff in it and a tent in the back. And we just, just left the tent set up and we'd roll the door open. We're ready to camp. Um, and uh, yeah, so we did, we did almost exactly like 3000 miles in the RV and then 3000 in the Penske. Um, and then I called my insurance and told them about the windstorm in Arkansas the RV is the only vehicle I've ever had comprehensive on because I kind of thought it was going to burst into flames at some point. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if there's going to be one vehicle, you really want the vehicle that's also a house. It's basically renter's insurance at that point. Yeah. Like I really thought we would end up. I, I was I thought it would probably just like explode from one of the propane systems that was super janky or something like that. I didn't think that a windstorm would tear it to pieces but it did so I, I called that in and uh they totaled it we got the money from the rv being totaled it got towed away from this guy's lot we never had to go back and deal with it we told him to like raid it for parts as much as he needed to before it went away and um we took that insurance check and made the down payment on our house with the big shop that we were just talking about that's awesome. <laughs> so the rumor is that, uh, well, I, I actually know the truth of this, that you are not going to replicate that trip, but try to do that trip in a more rational fashion in something that's almost as long, but not as tall. And um, Stampy from the forum wants you to admit that this car is the greatest car that's ever been. Is that true? The, the 77 Cadillac DeVille? Yeah. Oh, that. my Lord. <laughs> it's a pretty cool, like, drivable living room. I'm not going to say it's the greatest <laughs> car that's ever been. It's about to say, um, you could probably set up a bed in the trunk. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, ask me when I when we get back, right? Like, if it works, then, yeah, <laughs> I might be saying that. So where are you going in this one? Uh, we want to cover more of the northern portion of the U.S. because we, we did the southwest, right? The RV trip kind of went out, you know, through Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and sort of explored that chunk of the country. So now we want to go north and kind of drive a more northern route out to, like, Oregon. Okay. Yeah, nothing... nothing makes me think dude we should cross the rocky mountains like a 77 cadillac um, it'll be fun. so <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure it will be although the, the cadillac might 
disappear itself before we get on the road. Like I've never driven a vehicle that I'm more like certain someone will try to buy from me just while I'm driving around. Like I could make so many 70 year old friends. Um, just (laughs) they're the same people who are scowling at me when I'm driving the rally car. It's great. What, what would the price tag be for you to say, yeah, I'll sell it right now on the spot on this trip? Oh, not on the trip. It would, it would be beforehand, almost for oh, sure. Oh, before, on, okay. On, on the trip, it's going to depend on, uh, I don't know, nearest rental car place, how much I hate the Cadillac at that point, which could be a lot depending on how it goes. Um <laughs> <laughs> but you're presumably you're putting more miles on the Cadillac than you put on the the motorhome before you left with that. So yeah, it gets considerably better fuel economy. So it's you know Cadillac gets like twelve, motorhome got like four. So I, I can drive it three times as much and not feel bad about it. What's even the tank size on a Deville? I don't even know what those tanks used to hold. Are they just massive caverns? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Cause I don't totally trust the fuel gauge yet. I know it takes more than 25. Um, it's probably like in the thirties, 32. That's, that's so much 36. gas. <laughs> that's so much. I mean, they've got the room, so why not? I did once attempt to fill to fill to the top uh, a gas tank on an old Dodge van-based motorhome that I owned very very briefly as a teenager, and uh, I figured out I found out upon filling it that the gas tank didn't actually have a top really like the the bottom part of the tank held fuel, but you could put enough gas in that it would just sort of like start to flow out the top of the tank. Um, much to the chagrin of the gas station, the gas station owner, who had a lot of gas in his parking lot when I left, and then it sloshed out of the tank as we went down the road, and we didn't light on fire. So that was actually the only time I ever put gas in that uh, because it didn't make it far enough to ever need gas again. But um, that's a concern with old tanks: the the structural integrity of the top of the tank is not always what you think it would be. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm I sure they didn't had have the, those. And I'm sure they didn't have like the rollover safety valve and like all that stuff that cars kind of like have to have now. I, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure it's yeah. just a big metal container. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your what's your current uh, rally car rally plans rally everything? Because I've known you through the the third gen rx7 which is the car you were driving when i met you and that was the car before the show we were talking that just sort of was not exploding but just sort of like disintegrating at the end of the rally um and then you had the mercur which tested your mechanical patience is that accurate that's a very polite way to put that yeah (laughs) (laughs) And you can tell any stories you want about those two cars, but then your your current car is awesome and modern. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll work backwards. So the current car is a, 
BRZ slash FRS. It, yeah, I'll admit it was originally an FRS. It's a BRZ now. It's a cool orange Subaru. Um, and I had gotten kind of sick of fixing 80s junk all the time, and I wanted to, I wanted to build the rally car this time because the previous two had been purchases from people who had the cars and either let them sit and fall into disrepair or just sit and not rally and therefore the safety stuff wasn't updated this car was like no i want to do something from scratch i think i've seen enough mistakes now that were either other people's or my own to like have a good idea of what i want to do so bought this car with a knocking engine as subarus tend to do um put another engine in it uh the 2013s uh had all sorts of issues anyway and there are upgrades on the later engines so i put a 2016 engine in it uh moved the strut towers up three and a quarter inches for more travel uh did my own like homebrew suspension because i'm not spending ten thousand dollars for a set of coilovers it's just like if if it's ever the thing holding me back i'll think about it but you know, I just wanted enough travel not to destroy the car and uh, something tough enough that it wouldn't fall apart during a rally. Like uh, you, like you cut the top of the struts, moved yeah. them up, welded it back together. So I actually, um, I use a 3D scanner a decent amount for work. So I 3D scanned everything, designed all new sort of plate strut towers, had all that stuff. Uh, plasma cut and then made 3d printed fixtures to relocate everything up so the geometry would stay right and basically welded around the whole fixture knocked the fixture out cut the old tower out from underneath um seems like it worked pretty well um and the motor's still in one piece well it's it's the new motor right like i i replaced it it actually had a six month warranty on it when I put the 16 motor in. So I did nine rally crosses in that time period and didn't seem to have a problem. Just to be sure. Yeah. Well, and I put like 1500 street miles on the car too. Um, with the, with the suspension and everything. Uh, the only thing that didn't get all that much testing was the diff. Uh, cause it took me a while to figure out how to make a cheap clutch pack diff work on one of these. Because I didn't want to give three thousand dollars to whoever for an aftermarket one, um, so it's it's a Mark III Supra internals gears that are intended for a Tacoma. Um, it all pretty much goes together like it's supposed to be in there. It's fine. Pretty pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and that car that car is awesome, and I like it a lot. I had Adam Brock. Uh, do the cage because I I originally tried to get the cage like CNC bent and stuff because I, I think I could weld it together just fine if it all fit perfectly from the start. The problem is I'm really impatient, so if I'm hand fabricating the cage, I don't trust myself because I'll take a quarter inch gap and go, oh, I can fill that with weld and just go. That's not what you want to do on a cage, so I got a guy who uh, is extremely good at it and attentive and won't do that um that's the guy who travels around the country in his van building rally cages right 
Yep. So he lived in our shop in his van uh, for a couple weeks while um, he did that, and he did a Volvo 240 also for uh, somebody from the D.C. region, Rallycross area. This sounds like the, um, I forget his name right now, but the Japanese guy who does the Rough World Porsches, and basically part of the deal with him putting these massive over fenders and huge wings on your Porsche is that he gets to basically live with you for like two or three months while he does the work. That's like it's a, two or it's three like weeks. That. Yeah. Like I, I told Adam when he showed up at my place, like I hope it doesn't insult you that I call you a roll cage gypsy when I explain your deal to other people. Cause that's kind of what it is. Um, and it, it was awesome. Like if you need a cage done, definitely go find him. It was and the, the cage is it's the nicest race car I've ever been in like putting aside that it, it's something that got built in my garage it's just I don't know it it works um, at least as far as I can tell we haven't done a full stage rally in it yet but it's not like our previous rally cars where it's rattly and things are terrible and it's constantly got something wrong um, somebody did manage to crash into it about a week ago, but I'm handling that and it's, it's almost fixed. So, yeah. That's going to fix itself well. I mean that there's not, you didn't find anything horrible when you pulled it apart. No. Um, it, uh, basically somebody else turned into us and hit the front left wheel and then sort of dragged their front bumper down the whole side of the car. So it bent some of the stuff that attaches to that wheel, but it doesn't look like it moved the tower or the subframe or the reinforced control arm or any of that. So um, I actually just got the last of the parts to um, put together a new strut housing for that corner. So I'll find out soon if it drives straight and then it can go to the body shop and they'll fix the quarter panel. Cool. So you have a modern, you have a modern car that is your stage rally car, and it makes you happy. Uh, tell us about the Mercur that led to you deciding you needed to not have '80s crap in your garage as a race car anymore. Um, so the the the, the Mercur was something that, um, if you go on Rally Anarchy, which is a dead forum now, but I think all the old posts are still there. Um, that and the Volvo 240 are like the car, right? The way that Miata is the answer on GRM, those are the answer on Rally Anarchy. Uh, what I didn't really give enough credit to when I first bought that car was that the posts I were reading was reading were 15 years old. The car was way newer when people were going, they're super reliable, nothing ever breaks, they're awesome. So I had like three and a half years of just fighting old electronics and replacement parts that were just as crap as the original parts and, a, you know, extremely heavy cast iron four cylinder that still manages to warp heads and crack them and that sort of thing. Um, and we never DNF'd with that car, um, but we never had a rally where nothing was wrong. Um, we, we ended rallies on fire. We ended rallies with 15 degrees of rear camber. 
Um, I found out when the new owner, who is a much more relaxed uh, and experienced mechanic than I am, uh, went through everything that the cam timing was wrong for who knows how long uh, because it was a mishmash of parts that I just was pretty sure the timing was right and it, it didn't stand out as running crappy compared to how it had run previously. So sure. And we, you know, ran new England forest rally and Southern Ohio forest rally with the cam timing off like 10 degrees or something. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was just, um, I think the best way I can sum up that car is the, the new owner of it, Perry, who, again, he's, he's better than I am at like all of this stuff called me mid rally. And he goes, we replaced these six things without any of them. It shouldn't have run at all. It doesn't run any better. (laughs) How were all of those broken and changed nothing? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the Mercor. I I am sorry, but I also, (laughs) said that um (laughs) uh so he's putting a totally different engine in it with a standalone it's going to be much better i think is he k-swapping it no he's putting a a duratec in it um k-series was suggested the 2.5 i think so yeah um yeah we've got um a bunch of nc miatas doing the 2.5 duratec swaps and those things make a surprising amount of torque yeah no i i think it'll be fast and uh you know probably embarrassingly he'll show up with it and beat me um but (laughs) that's okay i'm i'm glad to be done with it uh it it made it made a bunch of interesting events for me but by the last one i was pretty done with just not getting to compete because the car was broken like that's cool the first five times it happens and you're like look i'm macgyver i made the car run all the way to the finish line and eventually you're like it would be pretty neat to race for more than like three stages of the rally um And prior to the Mercour, when I met you, you had a, a second gen RX-7. That second gen? Yeah, I, I think um, so. FC, right? FC. Yeah, I, I get confused with them. I know that it was was the far newer one than the crappy RX-7 that I owned at the time. Um, and surprisingly, that car like ran. The the FC was exactly the opposite story of the Mercour. Like everyone, everything I could read told me it probably wasn't a good idea to buy it. Um, I bought it f- for, I think a thousand bucks, maybe it was 1200 sight unseen across the country. So it was in Washington. I'm in Pennsylvania. I had it shipped to me. It had not been running, sitting in a field for years, got it running, changed almost nothing on the engine. Like refreshed it did safety updates and then just ran it and it was certainly never perfect but the unibody literally started falling apart uh before well kind of simultaneous with the engine falling apart but still it it its will to live was incredible i mean it just wanted to keep going yeah that was a pretty special car so 
So I think the the question is, and we we sort of ask all of this with everybody who races. There's a there's a giant, like, why would you choose to spend your life doing this thing that you do? Um, like, there, there's got to be a hundred hobbies that make way more sense than stage rally, uh, but you keep doing it. So why? Um, I mean, it. Stage rally in particular um, is just one of the like I f- I feel like when I when I autocrossed or I would even at a lemons race sometimes you'd go and things wouldn't go well and you'd just be bummed out and it wouldn't be a cool story it would just be kind of that's the end of it and like stage rally it is. Uh, it's awesome because it's insane and an adrenaline rush or it's this just impossible like Mad Max thing where everything barely works. You do, you do like, you know, we, we've probably had rallies where if we did one of like 20 things that we did on a track, we would be thrown out and banned for life. Like, <laughs> no, you don't drive on a flat tire. You don't drive like spewing smoke or on fire or like with pieces of your car held on with ratchet straps. And in rally, that's like encouraged. That's awesome. Um, and on top of all that, like it's a team sport where you have two people in the car and Sarah does it with me and not only that, she's awesome at it. I would argue that she's a far better navigator than I am a driver. Um, so it's this, there's, there's basically no equivalent to that unless you were going to go do tarmac rallies or something. So what is, I guess for people, even like myself, who don't know stage rally very well, what is the interaction? Like, what are the responsibilities of, the navigator um at the most basic it's reading notes while you're racing and the notes are what you picture if you you know watch speed channel or whatever if you just go to youtube and type in rally um you know directions and severities and cautions and stuff so left to over crest titans uh, 300 triple caution, huge jump with rocks everywhere, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of the time, uh, you also have to write those. On occasion, there are organizer-provided notes where they actually give you a book and they're just reading out of that. But a lot of the time, we're actually out one or two days ahead of time driving around writing those notes so it's literally hand scribbled stuff from two days ago that you marked up in your hotel room that you're now reading at 90 miles an hour in the middle of the trees so my understanding when i do this is oh is always that if you didn't have a navigator reading you notes you couldn't drive that fast because they're letting you know what's coming such that you can drive to it faster than you safely could if you just had to use your own eyes. Oh, 100%. Um, and I, I think there are varying levels of it, right? Like there are some people who've run the same rally 
years and years and years in a row, and maybe they're starting to have some stuff memorized. But even then, the confidence to keep it pinned when you're going over a completely blind crest at 100 miles an hour probably wouldn't be there without somebody telling you. Um, and I, I did do that because I did rally moto, partially your fault. I think you were the first person who told me, hey, you know, you can go rallying on a bike. <laughs> um, I did rally moto Wait, before maybe. we got the RX-7. And uh, you can go fast, but you can't. It's not the same thing. Like, it was fun, but it almost felt like a different sport. So what's the... I'm, I'm thinking about trust that has to exist between a driver and a navigator. I mean, the navigator has to trust that the driver is skilled enough and aware enough to drive fast but not hit anything. And the driver has to trust that the navigator doesn't skip lines doesn't say something different than what's read i what's can you can you talk a little bit about that um it's definitely something that's sort of developed over time um there are drivers out there who seem to use different navigators somewhat frequently and there are navigators out there who are like hired guns and jump in with people um i i'm not totally sure how those people do it other than just faith that the person they've signed on with is good Um, i was about to say man that's a (laughs) it's it's intense um but as as far as um me and sarah Early on, we did have a lot of uh, feedback going back and forth where um, she would call notes early or she'd call notes late and I'd say something. Or we'd go around a corner and I would go, whoa, that was, uh, we wrote the wrong thing. And she'd go, yeah, we did. Uh, (laughs) And that's kind of, uh, you know, you, you both get better at it and you learn to trust that the other person is better at it. And like, I think for Southern Ohio forest rally, which was crazy last year because they ran it overnight. It was like started at 7 PM and ended at like 4 AM. Um, I don't think we had a single like cross talk moment where it was like, Oh, the notes are a little off or something's a little bit like it was just correct the whole time. So you, you get in a groove and I find that like when things are going right, I'm not necessarily thinking like I just heard left three, which way is left? It's over there. What's a three. Eh, it's like, I'm going to slow down. Like, no, I just, it's uh you, you kind of know what the next corner is. Um, and I'm sure that people have different skill levels of like switching that on and off. I have to imagine the people at the front of the field could have a random, front of the field co-driver jump in with them and immediately feel that way. Um, but it's, it's super cool to like work your way to that and then get there and feel like, Oh, we, we don't need to like, we're not stumbling through this anymore. This works. That's kind of amazing. I don't trust anybody like that. So 
<laughs> well, uh, go I mean, go don't crash for like 1200 miles of off-road whatever and then you will. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. And and honestly most of my navigating has been in recent years has been summer road trips with my kids. So I've got like an 11-year-old trying to tell me how to get to, you know, the next uh, the hotel and I'll be honest that's not terribly confidence inspiring. Yeah. So, well, it's I um I, Sarah would kill me if I didn't tell the story of the one time I told her to stop reading notes. Um, it was the, the <laughs> first time we ever ran Black River Stages with the Mercor, and we had just bought it from somebody else, and I had like done safety updates, but that's it. Her seat was too low, like it was set up for like a six foot four dude, and she could not see over the dashboard. And we were on a stage that I had run on a motorcycle previously, and the notes were getting wonky because it was like one of those stages where the turns are just right three left three right three left three right three left three left four right three like it's impossible to track where you are if you're not dead on and i just said no no shut up i got this it's fine i know where we are (laughs) the next turn was a left five titans two which if you're not familiar with rally notes that's like fast sweeper pinches down into a like second gear corner um and i entered it like it was a five it tightened we went right off the road onto a stump and (laughs) that is the last time i have ever gone you know what i don't need the notes (laughs) was there ever an i told you so in there um there wasn't really time because the car almost immediately started steaming and uh, on a hot rally stage when you crash, uh, you basically have to run and like set up triangles to let oncoming cars know that there's a car up here and if you crash, you're going to do even more damage than you already would. Um, so there was definitely one afterwards um, while, you know, we, we basically got towed off the stump and pulled to the end of the stage, and then I'm fixing the coolant line that burst, and Sarah's like, so that was kind of dumb. I'm like, yeah, that was uh, not great. I'm going to fix this coolant line, and then we're going to do the notes uh, for the rest of the rally. <laughs> I've always thought it was it was fascinating that it that it is... I don't know if it's 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 explicit or implicit that the first responder to any accident is the next guy on stage, um, which is different than any other racing. Yeah, I think short of like some desert racing, uh, that's true, um, and it it's uh, it really kind of. I, it tightens the community up in, in a way. Like, we all know that we might be the person who has to pull somebody else out of a car that's upside down. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's part of the adventure of the thing, that you are out there and you just have you and your competitors and the stuff you have with you. And like, yeah, there's an ambulance, but it's... 10 miles of twisty gravel road away. Um, 
and there are systems that make things safer and make it easier to communicate and everything. But when it comes down to it, yeah, you're, you're kind of out in the woods flying around and you need to take care of each other. Yeah, it's a it's a neat community. I've been around a, a couple times. I've been to a few few rallies, and I haven't quite pulled the trigger on participating. Um, but you lot are a fascinating group of people, um, to be sure. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. I, yeah, I'm trying to sound. I'm trying to say this really nice, by the way, instead of saying you're a bunch of weirdos, which is the other way to put it. Yeah, and it's fair. So I have, a, I have a question from the Grassroots Forum um, that has uh, a lot to do with your, your build threads and the fact that you seem very good at doing car things. Um, I know you don't think that all the time, but from the outside looking in, um, your level of competence seems excruciatingly high to most of us. And somebody was asking what your what your educational experience or work experience was and how that translates back to cutting the strut towers out of a fairly new car, that sort of thing. Um, well, the, the ability to do the strut tower thing was definitely directly related to having done uh, CAD stuff, mostly SolidWorks for work and in college specifically because in college I basically uh, went to class as little as possible and did as much formula SAE as possible um, so that's kind of where like the 3D scanner is an awesome tool to make it happen but the ability to look at this perfectly good car and go like I'm going to cut a big hole in it and move a suspension piece came from the Formula SAE stuff where I'm like well I don't know we built a whole car from scratch so it can't be that bad to just move a chunk of one right um, was it what moving moving the strut towers was it just as easy to move something as it is to design something from scratch Oh yeah, way way easier if anything. Um, it, but the the magic of it was getting people to do the parts that I knew I didn't have the patience to do perfectly. So, if I designed a bunch of pieces to move a strut tower, but then I had to hand make the jig to move it, or had to hand plasma cut the panels that make up the new tower. I would have screwed it up. Um, it's not something that I really want to like accept and just have be a hard rule for my entire life. But the fact is, history shows that I tend to like when something's in front of me, I will just plow through it and go do it, and that's it. And so I, I outsourced that part and got perfectly cut to my specifications sheet metal pieces and printed to my specifications 3D fixturing. Um, and w then all you have to do is just like assemble, weld, remove fixture, cut old thing out. And I knew I could do that too. Um, so it's sort of planning around whatever your, uh, whatever your shortcomings are. If somebody was an incredible fabricator and they could make all that stuff perfectly, but had no idea how to move it, 
they would need a different set of friends or businesses to offload things to. They'd need to pick somebody and go like, hey, can you like make a model of this and make it line up and figure out all the sizes? Which, by the way, if you're trying to do this sort of thing, like talk to me if, if you need that person. It's fun <laughs> for me. So, yeah, I mean, it does sound like you've you've done things, you've gotten yourself into projects that are ambitious. So where where does that ability to discern what is up your alley and what is not? Like how how have you come to realize and recognize when something should be um, exported to somebody else to do? Trial and error, mostly. Um, I haven't, I haven't counted how many vehicles I've owned lately. I got to be approaching 50 or maybe past. Like I, I, uh, I, I, I tend to like get something, complete the project, go racing and then sell it. Um, and that happens slower now that I've sort of ended up in stage rally where everything is expensive and hard and the events are long and far apart. Um, but yeah, I, I screwed up a lot of times. Like you, you kind of go out and go, I have this idea. I want to try to make it. And knowing, for example, that I wanted to outsource the cage on the newest car came from just probably 20 different cars that I know I welded something to that I wasn't happy with because I rushed it. Um, so, you know, that, that doesn't mean that you have to just go, well, that part of me sucks and I can't do anything about it, but you can sort of get ahead of yourself and, and go, you know what, I'm going to set this up so that that guy I know that I turn into when I'm eight hours into fabricating something isn't going to ruin it because he did these other 20 times. So something like fully realizing not even necessarily like what you're good at and what you're not good at. That seems to be kind of the outcome, but more along the lines of, I just I that you know yourself well enough to know what you can take on and your tendencies like you said 8 hours into a project. Yeah. And um part of it and and something that bothered me a lot when I first started like autocrossing when I was 16 or whatever like uh, people would always say like, oh, you got to know people. You got to know a guy to do this and you got to know a guy to do that. And you have to like network. And I, I hate that because I hate like the sort of self-promotion concept of like, ah, get out there. And and I realized relatively recently, I guess, that, oh, I, I know a bunch of those people now, even though I didn't like the concept of going hunting for them. It turns out you just go do cool stuff and the other people with the skills and the interesting connections are just there also doing cool stuff and you end up knowing them it's not something you have to like push at it just it sort of emerges that kind of makes sense now that i think about things 
because I keep having people in the world of tiny motorcycles. I keep having people, oh, do you know this guy? Yeah, I, I actually already know him because I bought tires from him or did something like that. And he happens to be one of the guys who does things. So, yeah, that, that network of people does sort of show up. And the rally community is, like, super small. Um, it's It's absurd how few people are in the rally community in the United States. Total. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I don't know the numbers now, but I think a f- couple years ago, somebody said there were literally, there was one licensed rally driver to every million people in the U.S. Like literally it was one to a million number. Pretty good. Yeah. And when I, uh, when I hang out with my friend, uh, uh, Texas Dave, he knows literally everyone participating in rally in the United States right now, um, which is weird to me, um, but also fascinating because everybody knows everybody, which is pretty cool in that that community. Um, I had another question for you that was related to, uh, challenge cars and I'm trying to remember what it is. So you never brought a car to the grassroots motorsports challenge. You were the challenge hobo for a number of years, right? Yeah, I, I did end up bringing a car, uh, but it was somebody else's car. Um, but yeah, for, for years I would, uh, basically I, one one year I drove down with somebody else just because they needed a second driver to bring their car and like I, I worked on it while I was there and paid paid my way that way kind of um, another year I traded just a pile of parts for my share of a hotel room um, so I would I would kind of like make my own personal little challenge of like figuring out how to get down there and do the thing without really paying for it. Um, and the parking lot build frequently, not always, but frequently is just a fixture there that you can just raise your hand and say, yeah, I want to not sleep for 40 hours and make a really bad race car. Um, so it was, that was always like an easy default, like, yep, that's what I'm going to go do. Um, and then in 2019, when we had the, the gastropods class thing, um, largely dreamed up by you. Um, yeah, that was my fault. <laughs> we, uh, I, I actually brought, um, Josh Sennett's B2300 pickup truck, um, which had an engine swap and all this other stuff uh, because he had just had a kid and couldn't leave home to go blow up his truck in Florida. Um, and yeah, I guess that, that was the, uh, the last time I was there. So could one of you explain a gastropod class group thing? Uh. I could do it really quickly. That was that was my fault. Um, so I've also gone to the challenge several times and never brought a car because fundamentally I'm too lazy to be dedicated enough to build one. But as I've gone to the challenge, I've wanted to build not a car, but the community around stuff. And there's always like five or six guys who are like, 
I don't want to say the cool kids, but in any group, you know, this is in GLTC, you've got like, you know, you've got like Jubei and, and Emil Tab and you, and so there's like the cool kids. And <laughs> how, how did I get <laughs> in with that group? Because <laughs> I know how I know how your ego works. <laughs> and and if it's always a little bit hard to be an outsider for any of that. Um and we've talked about this with GLTC before, like like being the guy who's in the back and you kind of feel like, oh, I'm not really like with the group. And and so I wanted to create a group that we called the gastropods. Gastropods, of course, being snails. Um, snails are have a shell. They crawl into their shell. They're also slow. There's all the there's a lot of symbolism that goes along with that. And I sort of wanted to get these guys to all band together and hang out with each other and show up and, and have a ready-made group um, to do that. And so we were all going to... Uh, I made t-shirts. I made a lot of t-shirts. I made so many t-shirts. And we were all going to do this thing. And then um, like 10 days before the challenge, I fell off a motorcycle and broke my collarbone. So I spent um, the three days of the Grassroots Motorsports Challenge... Um, that I had created this class for on my couch in my living room, uh, high out of my mind on opiates rather than being there. And so, uh, we need to, we need to redo that, that class and that experience to bring together, um, the, the tail end of the group. And Chris was, was very much a proponent of, of doing that and bringing all those people together and was, was instrumental in creating the culture around that. So it seemed like it worked even though I wasn't there. Is that accurate? It, it did. Um, it definitely could have used somebody like with a megaphone going, Hey, all you people who like signed up for the, I'm not talking to anyone cause I don't know anyone class come over here. Um, but the shirts were brilliant because everyone could find each other. And even though I don't think anyone said like wear your gastropod shirt on race day, that's more or less what happened. So everyone sort of managed to gravitate towards each other. Um, so yeah, it, it was really cool. Like somebody would walk up and talk to you and they had a snail on their shirt and they're like, I've never been here. What's going on? And you're like, uh, which car do you have? Oh, I have the BMW or whatever. Okay, uh, we're about to autocross. Those are the pro drivers. They're really fast. Do like a run yourself to make sure your car's not going to blow up and then hand it to that guy. Like, <laughs> it was it was cool. Yeah, so I think it, I think it worked. Um, and I think it's an idea, actually. It's, it's a little bit like when you go to an autocross and there's the rookie chief. There's that guy whose job is to... Uh, sort of identify the new people and corral them into a little group and and you know make them feel loved and it was a little bit of that and a little bit of um, you know awkward people on the internet uh, ness which is whenever there's a bunch I don't want to say this in a way that's super offensive uh, but a lot of times people in real life are different than their personas on the internet does that make sense Scott? Yes. And some people on the internet that are super outgoing, wonderful people in person are very awkward, quiet, like people that are that are in their own shell. And so you do need somebody to to make them 
become themselves in real life. Um, and I think every group of, of racers needs that sort of thing. I honestly think that, that I think Adam, Adam Jubay and GLTC, Adam Jubay sort of takes that role on no matter what, um, because he loves everyone. And so you've got in the same way that the, like the track Midwest chat has all of these people that are virtual people and then they get together and then they have to become real people together. Adam makes you feel like you're a real person together, but I think every group needs an Adam or needs a rookie chief or needs something like that to, to make that transition from virtual space into real space. Yeah, we always describe that as um, being the awkward one so the other person doesn't have to, that you have yeah. to like, you have to, uh, kind of own and be comfortable in this space and first interactions are always awkward so don't make the new person have to do it right so yeah and, and chris is an engineer so he's he's familiar with all the awkward right chris oh yeah thousand percent but <laughs> at the challenge it there's this really easy out which is that like almost all the cars are either broken or getting like last minute stuff and you can just jump in there and be like what do you need help with and then you find out the person's name three hours later it's fine we had ethan talk about that exact thing how many cars he's worked on and he knows most of the people's names yeah that was that was very similar to what happens at the challenge uh he was he had that vibe going on with that um, so Chris, you also raced, I'm going to bring this back in, continue to drive Scott nuts. You raced tiny motorcycles for a while. For um, a little bit. And why? So why, why did you do that? And why did you stop? Yeah, there's, so, everything has an implicit why. It was, it was partly because I was racing rally moto. Um, and I was out on a bike on these rally stages, like, man, I'm going really fast for how much I suck at this. Um, and also one of my friends who rides motorcycles and still does the small motorcycle racing thing got into it at the same time. So I kind of had like a, a, a partner in crime to go try it with. Um, so I had a, a TTR 125 in our stock 125 class. Um, I'm sure there's an equivalent in Texas. Um, and bought some terrible old leathers and went out there and did it. And it was super fun for pretty much a full season. Um, and I learned a lot and then I plateaued. Like I got stuck there. You know, I could get my knee down, but like I still wasn't one of the fast guys. I was fast in the rain, but in the dry, I was just consistently like couldn't get any faster and eventually I started crashing, trying to get faster and kind of crashing hard occasionally and kind of moved away from it. But that, that period where I was getting better every lap and I could go out and just like come back in and go, I am a 10% better motorcyclist than I was before I went out here was amazing. And I think if I had a track down the street like you do, I, I would have stuck with it longer, but when practice is several hours away, it's yeah. Yeah. 
do you th what do you think the what do you think that brings to driving cars like do you think there's overlap between bikes and cars yeah i think um i think bikes translate to cars considerably more than cars translate to bikes like if you took a really fast motorcycle racer and you stuck him in a car he'd probably be pretty decent if you take a really fast car guy and put him on a bike uh flip a coin i'm i'm not sure um because the motorcycle basically has an extra dimension of like your body is a significant piece of the system um, where in a car you're kind of just fixed in place and feeling what's happening around you. Um, and all, all the regular stuff of like managing grip and line choice and looking ahead still applies on the bike. Um, so it's, it's really... Yeah, I, I think I think the bike helps with the car, for sure. Cool. What do you th do? You think that's also relevant as far as rally moto to stage rally, or is that a completely different thing? Uh, less for the dynamics of the vehicle. Um, a, a motorcycle on gravel is a pretty different animal than a car on gravel. Um, but in terms of learning how time cards work, how to navigate a transit stage, uh, how to check in and out of service, how to, like, anything. Anything that happens... Stage Rally has so many of these little, like, uh, sort of timekeeping and notation things that you have to learn. And motorcycles that are built for riding off-road don't really break when you take them on rally roads. So you can just focus on learning all that stuff that makes rally rally. Um, whereas with a car, usually whatever you start with, unless you have a lot of money to throw at it, is braking all the time. And you're doing a lot of managing there. And you have a navigator who's either learning at the same time or they already know this stuff and you're maybe not gonna learn it. Like I, I wouldn't really know how a time card works if I hadn't done rally moto because that all happens on the navigator's side of things. But because I've done rally moto, I can pretty easily, like, we've had situations where on a transit stage, Sarah will basically just hold up the route book and I can navigate it um, because I know how that side of it works. So it's, it's fantastic for learning just how to rally, maybe not the, the driving part, but how the whole thing functions. That's interesting and also creates a justification for me to rally moto at some point. I'll be like, no, I need to. Chris told me to. Yeah, so, no, definitely. I think along with that, when you talked about the, the rally car is constantly, you didn't say it quite like this, but the rally car is constantly trying to brake. Someone uh, asked me to ask you about mechanical empathy and sort of your feelings on mechanical empathy and how that translates to beating cars to death, which is kind of what rally is. Yeah. Well, and I've done it right. Like that's, that's legitimately <laughs> right. what happened to the RX seven. Um, <laughs> it just had had enough. Um, I it's, it's important to know what's happening to the car, right? Like it's important to understand what happens when you bottom a suspension out so hard that, something has to bend or crack 
or when you're bouncing off the rev limiter, which I don't do nearly as much, or when you nose the car into the ground because you got the timing and the sort of rhythm of a jump wrong. Um, but you can't sit there and dwell on it. You can slow down if that's what is demanded by the event or by what you plan for the car. Um, but that's sort of where the mechanical empathy has to end. You have to know what's going on, but you can't bottom the suspension out on a rally car and go, ooh, I, I feel really bad about that. Like, that, it's going to be very hard to go fast. Um, not, not that I'm particularly fast, but, like, I feel like we got almost everything out of the RX-7. Um, and I don't know. It's, it's the car's job, right? Like, it's almost like saying, if you're a football player or something, like, don't you know about injuries? Of course. But when you're on the field, you go crash into other people. Like, with the rally car, yeah, I, I know what it's doing to it, but that's what it's for. I wouldn't even have the thing if I didn't intend it to be, you know, thrown off of jumps and maybe clip the occasional tree and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I think for... I mean, everybody who races cars on a track or anywhere knows that there's a possibility that you're going to ball it up. But I think rally is seems to be the only branch of motorsports where the expectation is that if you do this long enough, the car will cease to function. Like... Somebody said that you can get like three years of rally out of a shell and then uh, it's done. It's eh. floppy and crap and it's... I think maybe maybe at the absolute pointy end of the field, right? Um, okay. Like that RX-7, um, if you open the logbook on that thing, it had pictures of that car from 1987, brand new, bought as a dealer leftover when it had a cage put in it and went rallying. That thing had been racing on and off for 30 years, more or less. Um, so it had a lot of entries in that logbook that led to where it was when you saw it at Magnum Opus. And yeah, the shell was gone before that rally by like technical measurement. If you looked at like, I couldn't get any of the wheels to less than three degrees of camber because everything had bent in. Um, <laughs> It was seam welded, but not like prep seam welded. This was repair seam welded because everything had begun splitting and got hammered back together and welded. Um, <laughs> so somewhere between that three-year number and my 30-year number that I found on the RX-7 is, is probably the truth of it for like a regular person. Um, but I, I would totally believe it for like an open class car that's being pushed as hard as possible and running every single rally on the calendar constantly. Um, like if, if you take uh, almost any rally car, even like the really shiny, perfect looking ones, and you just sort of lean down and stick your head in the wheel well or like look underneath, they're all a little bit of a disaster. Like stuff happens to them. If you look at the Vermont sports car cars, you know, like they look that clean because everything is repainted underneath like constantly they're 
constant maintenance to keep them from becoming a disaster. So if you're a regular person who just like washes it off and does the maintenance and takes it to the next rally, they really do start looking like they've been totaled several, several times over. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a fascinating sport. I love it. Well, I think we basically have made a podcast at this point. Um, is there any other stories you want to tell or people you want to thank or any of that stuff? I mean, like, I don't Everybody on Grassroots Motorsports, honestly. Like, I, if, if I start naming people, I'll forget one. Um, it's just, like, such a good community of people who you can just, like, throw something out there. Um, I will specifically say Michael Crawford, like I just sort of threw out like, hey, I need to find orange parts for my rally car that somebody just hit. And he's like, when do you want me there? Do I have to pull them? How far do you want me to travel to meet you? Like immediately, just yes, okay. What What's the job? Let's go. Um, so that's that's super awesome. And, like, for the most part, that is who you will meet if you ask for help on there. Um, And same thing with the DC Rallycross, like, community. Um, It's, uh, like, the the rally community as a whole is great, right? But a lot of us started rallycrossing with this, like, little group in DC where there were people 10 years ago who were like, oh, that's the guy who drives rallycross really fast. And now a good portion of us are all stage rallying and we're still helping each other out. And um, so that's, that's super cool too, to like see that come full circle. And, you know, if you go on stage rally forums, sometimes you'll see uh, like, Oh, Rallycross is stupid. It doesn't really teach you. Like, no, that program has graduated so many, like, stage rally drivers just by, hey, here's a place to come drive your regular car in a field. And 10 years later, you'll be flying through the woods. There's a rumor that a bunch of those, uh, the DC Rallycross guys are going to make it to Rallycross Nationals because it's in Ohio this year. I They better. So that should be interesting because it's a that's a really fast fast region, but it's so far away from where they've held nationals for so long that very few of them make it out there. So that that could be exciting. Yeah. No. I there's normally you know only one or two people who actually go out to nationals. So I'm hoping that a ton of them show up at Rallycross Nationals. Um. And what else? Uh. I, it, I guess the, the only other thing I want to say is that, like, I, I really think people um, in general, like, make more of what you need to start any given motorsport than is really necessary. Like, don't worry about it. If you want to go racing go racing if you want to build a crazy project car go build a crazy project car like just do that first step um because that's all i did to end up doing what i do now 
was repeatedly go, I don't know if I can do this. Better try. Yeah, we we've talked we feel like we've talked about that a fair bit on here is just the amount of things that like you said people say that you need to have oh you need to have a, a tow rig to be able to go drive on a race track you need to have a turbo kit and big brakes and the widest stickiest tires possible and all this stuff and it's you're you are your own barrier to getting into motorsports pretty yeah. much straight up and i i feel like i have frequently uh found myself at the other end of that equation where i'm going no this is fine no this is fine with like trash um recognize the other version of it too right when when something <laughs> is ruining your day again and again and again go ahead and improve that thing you're not like a poser for buying the better dampers when you keep bending the ones you have or they're bouncing you off the track every time you touch the curbing or whatever. Um, but yeah, that, that sweet spot in the middle of like making it work without going crazy and thinking I need a stacker trailer and an RV and catering and like, no, you don't go racing. Fantastic. Do you have any social media stuff you want to tell people about to be like, hey, how do I find Chris Nonak and all of his adventures? Um, we actually just started uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, it's any percent, A-N-Y percent sign. Um, with, it's based on the idea that I just talked about. Like, you don't need 100% of the things. But make it work. Whatever you have, go do the thing and eventually we want to turn that into even more of like uh you know something helpful not not just like hey here's us in our racing but also like you want to build your own rally suspension well here's us kind of trying to help you through that um so yeah check us out there well fantastic i think we made a podcast um as usual, as Scott tells us, you can find us on different places that distribute podcasts. You're doing great. That I don't remember. And you should rate us and review us because that helps with things yes. that are metrics that Scott talks about. Mm -hmm. um, and those are super important for reasons. What about I don't know. Facebook? On Facebook, you can find us uh, at track, with track Walking Podcast. Is that Nailed right? It. Is that where Nailed you can find it. us? And, and uh, track walking chats um, if you want to, to chat about things associated with mm. track walking. Um, like, like Scott and his super cool car or Chris Nonek and all of his super cool cars. Um, and uh, that's it. So for another week, uh, I'm Seth. I'm Scott. And I'm ruining this outro because perfection is a lie. Go racing. <laughs> <laughs> Get off your butt. <laughs> we're we're track walking. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.